Welcome to the ninth FG podcast of 2015 related to the Twitter debate on Tuesday the 6th of October 2015 entitled Frontline Barretts, Screening, Surveillance and Therapy as a UEGW Special Debate. My name is Dr. Philip Smith. I'm the trainee editor of Frontline Gastroenterology and a gastroenterology registrar in London. And I'm delighted to introduce Professor Rebecca Fitzgerald, who holds a personal chair in cancer prevention at the University of Cambridge. She's a tenured program leader at the MRC Research Centre in Cambridge and is an honorary consultant in gastroenterology at Adam Brooks Hospital, Cambridge. She graduated from Cambridge University in 1992 performed a research degree at Stanford University in California and then undertook specialist clinical training and postdoc research at Barts and the London Hospitals. Whilst at Barts, funding from the MRC Clinical Scientist Award was instrumental for Professor Fitzgerald to continue her clinical training and also make progress with her laboratory research. She moved back to Cambridge in 2001 to the newly established MRC Cancer Unit which had translational cancer research at the heart of its mission. Her position within this unit was ideal for Professor Fitzgerald since the focus of her research is to improve methods for early detection of esophageal cancer through better understanding of the molecular pathogenesis. Professor Fitzgerald has been awarded many prizes, but most notably a NHS Innovation Prize in 2011, the UEG Research Prize in 2014, and previously the Sir Francis Avery Jones Medal from the British Society of Gastroenterology in 2007. In recognition of her work, she's been given the Gulstonian Lecturer at the Royal College of Physicians and is a Fellow at the Academy of Medical Sciences. She directs studies for medical students at Trinity College, Cambridge, and is a Fellow of the Institute for Learning and Teaching. Professor Fitzgerald is committed to bringing research advances into clinical practice and inspiring other researchers to do likewise. Professor Fitzgerald, thank you very much for doing this podcast to accompany your excellent Twitter debate, which you included a number of excellent slides that will be linked underneath this podcast. Esophageal cancer is one of those diagnoses as a gastroenterologist you, you just don't want to miss, not that you want to miss any diagnosis. However, given a low conversion rate from Barrett's to adenocarcinoma, should we be doing surveillance in these people? Um, thank you very much. I think you've hit the nail on the head, really. Esophageal adenocarcinoma is not a diagnosis that any of us want to miss. And the outcomes you know, for esophageal adenocarcinoma by the time it's invasive are poor, even with our really you know, advanced therapies these days, giving chemotherapy plus esophagectomy, sometimes combined with radiotherapy. It's, it's a difficult disease because it spreads early with local lymph node invasion. So yes, Barrett's esophagus does have a, a relatively low conversion rate. The relative risk is high, but the absolute risk is low. And surveillance is an imperfect test. It's based on, on an endoscopist trying to spot abnormalities, which can be very subtle and dysplasia can be flat and inconspicuous. And then it also hinges on the assessment of dysplasia, which is a difficult diagnosis, especially in the early stages, with a lot of vari variability, inter- and intra-observer variability. So surveillance isn't perfect, but given the poor outcomes from esophageal cancer, if we have a patient before us that's at risk to some extent, and, and endoscopy is relatively straightforward, I think it's difficult to say, don't do any surveillance. 
but I think we need to be thoughtful about how we do the surveillance and we need to do our best to stratify patients and we desperately need a paradigm shift in the way we do this all together. But for now, whilst we have white light endoscopy and dysplasia as our mainstay of surveillance, I think that we need to make sure that we've got the diagnosis right, that the patient truly does have Barrett's esophagus, we've not got a mistaken diagnosis of a hiatus hernia. We should look at the length of the segment and the presence of intestinal metaplasia and the degree of dysplasia, of course, and that should determine how frequently we do the surveillance and indeed whether at some stage the patient can be discharged, also bearing in mind their comorbidities. So I think we need to do it intelligently. We need to be guided by the risk of the patient um, and the BSG guidelines, which are updated relatively recently, give very good practical advice about how to think about this and, and look for better methods in the future. Thank you. So how can we tell which patients will progress and do biomarkers play a role in, in Barrett's esophagus? It can be difficult to tell which patients will progress, but what I'd like to suggest is that actually, because we have very good endoscopic therapy now, it's not so much a matter of sort of gazing into the future and trying to predict what, which patients will progress in several years' time. It's more a matter of accurately assessing the situation today when you're endoscoping the patient and biopsying the patient to make sure that you don't miss any prevalent dysplasia because now there's good evidence, randomized controlled trial evidence approved by NICE that we should intervene when the patient has low-grade dysplasia and, of course, high-grade dysplasia. So the key thing is to make sure that we do detect dysplasia if it exists and then intervene. And then if we're doing the endoscopy at a reasonable interval, we shouldn't miss cases in between that, that have incident dysplasia. So I don't think actually we need to have a crystal ball and be looking for five or ten years down the line. We just need to make sure that we're picking up the dysplasia well. And we need to use the best endoscope you have, a high-resolution endoscope. There's no point using something outdated where you've got a poor view. You need to make sure you clear the mucus well, and you really take time inspecting the mucosa, as we've got very used to doing for patients having colon screening. And then take the biopsies, well, look carefully for any subtle lesions, first of all, and biopsy those in a targeted fashion. And we'd be amazed, you know, all of us, I think, see patients coming through our MDT a specialist centre and, and there's a report that there's nothing conspicuous at endoscopy and you have a look and you can see a lesion. So look really carefully. And then do the Seattle protocol. It's not perfect, but you need to take plenty of biopsies because it's heterogeneous. And make sure the pathologist knows the clinical detail and is a pathologist who's used to looking at Barrett samples. And if there is dysplasia, you should get it looked at by a second pathologist. And in terms of biomarkers, that's where P53 can be really helpful just to confirm whether or not there's dysplasia there. So not used on its own, but as an adjunct for the pathologist to diagnose dysplasia. And I hope we'll be having more biomarkers in the future. We're beginning to understand much better the role of P53 genomic instability and copy number changes, but it's too early for those currently to be used in routine clinical practice. Thank you. It's clear that endoscopy is still very, very important in surveillance, and, and, but is there an alternative to endoscopy for the diagnosis and surveillance and of Barrett's, even one that's potentially coming available in the future? So this is something I've been very interested in for some years because I think endoscopy is an, an imperfect test. It's also quite invasive for the patient and it has a, quite a high cost associated with it. I must uh, emphasize that for the moment endoscopy is still the gold standard. The sorts of things that people have been looking at is GP-based endoscopy, so more nasal-based endoscopy. I think for surveillance I have concerns about transnasal endoscopy with smaller biopsies and a narrower field of view. I think for surveillance, you're better to, to if you're going to do endoscopy, to use you know, high-resolution endoscopy with a trimodal if you have it and with a, a biopsy scope. 
Um, there are some interesting technologies coming along. The, the video capsule has to be tethered to give it a slow enough transit, but there's really interesting technology using OCT from nine-point technologies. Um, they've managed to speed up uh, image acquisition time, um, and they get really a, a whole pull-through of the esophagus, which could be very useful for, for screening and possibly for surveillance. In terms of using the image in a clinically implementable way so that you can either the software will tell you whether there's Barrett's or whether it's suspicious. That's still a little way to go, but I think it's exciting technology to watch. We've taken the approach that the sample is the most important aspect and getting a less biased sample than biopsy and getting you know a, a really good sample of the whole of the Barrett's segment and using um, molecular approaches for a more objective diagnosis is the way to go. And we've developed a cytosponge coupled with biomarker technique. So, so the idea of this is you don't need an endoscopy. The cytosponge is a little capsule tethered to a string, and inside the capsule is compressed sponge, spherical sponge, which, which is abrasive to the esophagus and will collect cells. So you simply swallow the capsule with some water. You can do this in the GP surgery. You leave it for just five minutes for the capsule to dissolve. Then a nurse pulls it out, and as it comes out, the sponge collects a lot of cells on its surface and within the mesh, about half a million plus cells that come from the entire esophagus, including the Barrett segment, if it's there. And if you spin those cells off and stain them for trefoil factor 3, that's a very sensitive, specific marker for intestinal metaplasia. And we've done two large trials now showing that this could be a way forward for diagnosing Barrett's. In terms of risk stratification, we're then working on ways where you can use exactly the same sample. The patient doesn't need to repeat the test. But if they have Barrett's, if it's TFS3 positive, we can then look for P53 altered immunostaining mutation, for example. So we're hopeful that this could be a really different and more advantageous way for screening, for diagnosis, patients with heartburn and surveillance for Barrett's esophagus that could really reduce the burden on endoscopy and enable us to really focus our efforts on the patients at highest risk that need endoscopy and treatment. This is being commercialized by Medtronic. It's still got a little, a little way to go, so I think it's not quite ready for routine clinical use, but I really don't think it's too far off. Thank you, and um, thank you for that excellent detailed answer. Um, a question that's commonly asked and was asked during a Twitter debate is, is who should have ablation therapy for Barrett's? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, the treatment for Barrett's has really advanced, which, which is very exciting. And you know, it wasn't that long ago that patients with dysplasia had to have an esophagectomy. So I, I think that's excellent. Ablation therapy, if there's a lesion, isn't, isn't on its own necessarily enough. So if you can see a visible lesion, that needs to be resected with an endoscopic mucosal resection, sometimes dissection, but usually an EMR, and then the rest of the Barrett segment ablated. It's a straightforward technique and therefore it's easy to implement and it's being very widely, widely used. But it's not without some side effects. Patients usually need several treatments. It can be associated with stricturing, particularly in more elderly patients with longer segments. And patients still need follow-up. That may change over time, but for the moment we're not confident that, that, that really the natural history is completely reset and the patient's at no risk with their neosquamous epithelium, so the patient is monitored. So they still have to have you know, endoscopy down the line. So I think for those reasons, ablation should be reserved for those patients with dysplasia. For high-grade dysplasia, I think that's a straightforward decision. For low-grade dysplasia, it's a difficult diagnosis that so needs to be confirmed, as really highlighted in the BSG guidelines and the NICE IPAC guidelines for use of ablation. So it needs to be confirmed by two pathologists one at an external in institution and discussed at the MDT. So I think it shouldn't be used for patients with non-dysplastic Barrett's. Okay, thank you very much. Final question. 
the Dutch have advocated centralisation of surveillance. Is this a good idea? So they've advocated it for patients with long segments. I think on a busy endoscopy list um, in a busy district general hospital unit, surveillance can be a bit of a pain in the neck. It requires careful endoscopy, time to inspect, time to take the right number of biopsies and a pathologist who's interested in it. And so I think for patients who are at higher risk, particularly those with long segments, there is something to be said for thinking about centralizing the service. So that does obviously have some implications for logistics. But I think, you know, as we get more sophisticated and if we can reduce the burden of endoscopy in the way we've talked about for the patients really at low risk and focused on those at high risk, then I think they need, you know, they need to be having a procedure that's really being done by an expert who's interested. And probably that does mean centralization. And the treatments as well, you know, some of these treatments on the face of it, ablation is very simple, but you start getting complex EMRs, post-treatment strictures and things. So I think for those sorts of patients, there are arguments for, for centralising. So we don't currently advocate that in the UK, but I think it's something we need to consider carefully as, as the situation evolves. Thank you once again, Professor Fitzgerald, for your excellent Twitter debate and also for this fantastic podcast. We're really grateful for your support and for your time. The slides from the Twitter debate will be available to look at via a link uh, under this podcast. The next FG debate is with Dr. David Patch and Diraj um, Tripathi on Tuesday the 27th of November 2015 between 8 and 9 o'clock in the evening and we'll discuss frontline hepatology variceal bleeding guidelines with a focus around the recent variceal bleeding guidelines um, published in GUT. We hope you can join us then using the hashtag FGDebate.